Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. This week we're going to look at the third Sunday after Pentecost. Now we celebrated Pentecost three weeks ago, the day of Pentecost in that week, and then we celebrated the first Sunday after Pentecost, which we title Trinity Sunday. Last week, we continued our study of Numbers, Romans, and Matthew, and this week, Proper 8, the third Sunday after Pentecost, we'll be looking at Numbers, Romans, and Matthew again. So I hope that you will enjoy these readings. Let's start in Numbers 21. Verse 4. They were traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Now, I don't have a uh, geography uh, with me. I don't have a map with me, so you can see the geography of the land. But if you have maps at the, end, at the back of your Bible, usually they're found there. You can see where Edom is, where the Red Sea is. And the people grew impatient. Now, last week, we talked a lot about the impatience of the people of Israel. They were very difficult to deal with. They spoke out against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? Have you heard that before? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Now, what did I say last week about tempting the Lord, going against the Lord, and disobeying him, and grumbling against him? That's not a wise practice. He has the ability to marshal forces against us. Please do not do that. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned. Now, they recognize there's a problem because there's a consequence. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. We spoke against God and there were consequences. And they weren't good. We need this to stop. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So we sinned against God. God inflicted punishment on them. Now they want that punishment to stop by the same God who sent it. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake. And put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a brown snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at it, the bronze snake, he lived. Now this actually is an amazing verse because this is going to uh, be a some kind of prophetic element with Jesus. Everybody that looks at Jesus as the crucified Christ uh, has eternal life. So Jesus is going to be raised up on a pole. And anyone that looks to Christ is going to be saved. And then an interesting way that God prepares us for that. We see these readings in on Sunday on your post. You can see that on Sunday. All right, let's look at Numbers 22. We introduce Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam in Numbers is quite complex. Obviously, we don't have enough time and space to read it all to you. So again, I argue. If you have access to a commentary or you have access to a study Bible or study notes, that would be immensely helpful. The Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab. Remember, I talked about having an atlas. 
and look at the geography, look at where the countries are located, and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. So they're getting closer now. They're getting closer. And so uh, this um, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all, all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. And Moab was filled with dread. And the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick, it, lick up everything around us. So Balak, who was king of Moab, sent messengers to summon Balaam. And Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful. So he knows he can't defeat them, but he wants to put a curse on them. So he calls a person named Balaam. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those who curse are cursed. Now the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. So they were going to offer a fee to Balaam to curse Israel. And in that curse, Israel would be destroyed or put back or become very much inferior to them because they knew they couldn't beat him militarily. And there were many of them, and they were scared that they were going to advance upon them. Okay, you see what's going on? So the elders went and were going to talk to Balaam. Balaam said to them, I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So God said to Balaam, verse 8, verse 9, Why, who are these men? And Balaam said to God, Balak sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them. This is God talking to Balaam. But God said to Balaam in verse 12, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. So, God speaks to Balaam. Remember, he has tremendous power. We saw what he did earlier with the venomous snakes. We saw what he did uh, last week with how he cursed those that did not trust in him. He sent a plague among them who grumbled and griped. So when you have a person that can send plagues and a person that can send snakes, you don't play around with them. You also have a person that can speak to the person that's supposed to curse you. And he changes their mind. Now, the story in Numbers 22 that's listed on your post is about how Balaam and what Balaam did and how Balaam uh, worked with the people of Israel and God to deal with this issue of cursing and blessing. All right? So it's a wonderful series of scriptures. In chapter 23, we find what we call Balaam's first oracle. In chapter 23... By the way, in verse 19, it's a very famous verse. God is not a man, this is 23, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he could change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot change it. Look at verse 16. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him, found him standing beside his offering with the princes of Moab, Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? And then he honored this oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen, hear me. So God used Balaam 
to give a message to Balak to tell him what he thought and what he was going to do. And his conclusion is, God is not a man that she's to lie. He's not going to change his mind. He's going to speak and he's going to act. He is blessed. I cannot change it. Chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw that it had pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times. That's why they called him. He was into divination, sorcery. But turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered this oracle. And then we have the oracle in chapter 24. Read slowly. Enjoy the interchange between God and Balaam. You'll see uh, some fascinating um, language in these chapters 22, 23, and 24. And you'll see how God works and how God is in control and how God is sovereign. God is providential. And what we want to take from this is God is very, very powerful. He's omnipotent. We want to submit our lives to him on a daily basis. When we submit our lives to him and we do what he says, things go much better for us. When we don't do what he says and we don't listen to him and we try to destroy him or we try to destroy his people, there are very, very serious consequences to that. And so we see the prophet, um, uh, where how he uses the prophet Balaam. Balaam is actually not a prophet. He's a diviner. He's a sorcerer. But God uses him to bless his people because they are blessed and to work with this person that despises the word of the Lord. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Enjoy the readings from Numbers. Romans chapter 6. We finished off in verses 1 through 11, and now we're in Romans chapter 6, as you see on your post, starting in verse 12. Therefore, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Desire to sin must not be obeyed. Do not offer, verse 13, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Do not offer yourself to wickedness. Do not offer to God wrongdoing, righteousness. Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. May the grace of God move among us in such a way that we obey the word of the Lord. We submit to righteousness. We do not un act unrighteously. Look at what he says in verse 18. You've been set free from sin. You become slaves to righteousness. Follow the righteous path. Follow the Lord. Submit your body. Even though your body wants to sin and your mind wants to sin, your heart wants to sin, you've been brought at a price. Glorify God. Last couple of verses of chapter 6. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, this is what has happened 
for those who are in Christ. The benefit you reap is holy to, leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Now, what happens as a result of our being a slave to God is that we are going to act righteously. We are going to be holy. We are going to have eternal life. The wages of sin is death. The payback for the sin in our life is death. But the gift of God that he offers us, that's by grace, through faith in Christ, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the only way to be saved. The gift is eternal life. The problem is sin. The wages of sin is death. And so in chapter 7, this is the famous struggle that Paul has with sin, the struggle with sin that you and I go through, I'm sure, on a regular basis. It's almost exasperating. We know that the law is spiritual, verse 14. But I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. I know for what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate what I do. Have you ever been in that situation before? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. The law is good. It points out the problem. But I can't keep it. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, verse 17, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, verse 18, that is in my sinful nature. He says, I desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. I keep doing the evil, even though I know the good. I know what the good is, but I can't do it. So I find this law at work, verse 21. What I want to, when, I, what, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I believe in God's law. I like it. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The law of sin has made me a prisoner. So many people feel like that. What a wretched man I am. Verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus saves us from this extraordinary problem. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to obey the law, but I cannot obey the law. It is too difficult to obey the law. Wretched man that I am, who is going to rescue me? Who is going to save me? I can't save myself. Somebody outside of myself can't save me. My fellow man, they can't save me. They're in just as bad a predicament as I am or worse. Only Jesus can save me. And so we proceed to the fantastic eighth chapter, one of the great chapters of the entire Bible. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that every single one of you is in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The mind, verse 6, of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. You and I need to have minds controlled by the spirit of God because the mind of our sinful nature is death. If Christ is in you, verse 10, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness.
you are a child of God, verse 16. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. You're an heir of God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If you indeed share in his suffering and that we may, in order that we may also share in his glory. This, this, this whole section here is just fabulous. Read chapter 8 slowly. We know that in all things, verse 28, work for the good of those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? Very famous verse, verse 31, beautiful verse. And finally, I'm convinced, verse 38 and 39, which we will pick up next week, but I can't help but read it. Neither angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Hold on to that. Read that eighth chapter well. Be led by the Spirit of God, not by the power of the flesh. Because the power of the flesh won't get you anywhere any good. And the power of the Spirit is what you and I are seeking. And the fruit and the labor that result from that is a fantastic reward. Let's go to Matthew's Gospel. Well, we entered, the, we entered um, Jerusalem, remember? The Palm Sunday, we entered triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so now Jesus is going to do ministry. He overturns the tables at the temple, gets very upset from the way they are treating the temple. Of course, this wasn't a good start for him. This didn't win influence and influence people, that's for sure. Then he moves on to a prophecy about the fig tree. And the authority of Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and the leaders. They challenged him because he's right there with them. And then at the end of that chapter, we look at 21, and we look at the parable of the two sons. That's a great parable. Man had two sons. Son, go and work in my vineyard. I will not. He changed his mind, and he went. The father goes to the other son, says the same thing. Yes, sir, I'll be glad to, but he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted the first? Do what he says, even though you may not want to do it. It's okay to be honest and say, you know what? I don't want to do that. But when Jesus asks you and me to do something, may the Spirit of God move upon us in a powerful way so that we will do what God calls us to do. Continuing on with the parable of the tenants. A very strong uh, parable regarding the way that the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, are going to treat Jesus by killing him. This prophecy, this parable, was very poignant, very powerful. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 45, heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So they had to look for another way to kill him. In verse 22, we have the parable of the wedding banquet. Verses 1 to 14, the invitation, inviting people to come. Many are invited, few are chosen, is the last line. Then we have paying taxes to Caesar. Remember that? They wanted to trip him up, the Pharisees. Now, so Jesus is talking to people, a lot less miracles here, conversation, some teaching. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and you teach the way of God 
in accordance with the truth. Tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So if he says it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be in trouble with the Jews. If he says it's not, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans because he's not paying taxes. So he's in an impossible situation. But Jesus knew their evil intent. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. He asked them, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's. One of my favorite answers, King James. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Give Caesar's what's his. What's his? Give God's what is his. They were amazed when they heard this. They left him and went away. Give God what is God's in your life. Give Caesar what is Caesar's. And finally, we look at the marriage of the resurrection. Again, another question. The Sadducees are questioning this time. The Pharisees were questioning earlier uh, with paying taxes to Caesar. And they were just asking him crazy questions. He says in verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he gives them the hearing that the, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The Pharisees got together. Another person asked him a question, a lawyer, expert in the law. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Can't beat this right here, folks. 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's a great way to end our daily office lectionary teaching for proper eight. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourselves. May these scriptures touch your heart and your soul and your mind in a profound way. Think about them. Pray over them. I pray that God would speak to you and me as we work through the book of Numbers and dealing with Balaam and the blessing of God versus the curse of God, the great Romans text in dealing with sin in chapter 6 and 7, and the solution in chapter 8. And then Jesus enters, and he's already going at it and overthrowing the uh, folks in the temple who are making a mockery of God and dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He continues to speak the truth to us so that we will hear it and be saved. God bless you in your study, and we'll see you next week for the Daily Office Lectionary.